helping people cope with and overcome life's challenges. This is Life Transformations with Michael Hart, Canadian Certified Counselor and Award-Winning Psychotherapist. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Life Transformation Show. Today's show is titled, Seven Signs Your Spouse May Have Been Sexually Abused. Maybe you're in a relationship where you already know that your spouse has been sexually abused. If so, these signs indicate that the emotional wound from the abuse has not been healed. But maybe you're in a relationship where your spouse has never opened up to you about being sexually abused. If you see one or more of these signs, then it is quite possible that your spouse has been sexually abused. Even though they may keep silent about their abuse, these seven signs that I will be speaking about today speak volumes about a skeleton in the closet that needs to be addressed. In other cases, abuse victims may not recall being sexually abused, but they may suspect that they have been. If this is your case, this show will give signs that are telltale signs that sexual abuse may have taken place. As a disclaimer, I want to say to start this topic that not everyone who showed these signs has been sexually abused. However, if you have one or more of these seven signs, it may be helpful to get professional help whether or not you have a memory of being abused because these signs have been shown to be very common in victims of childhood sexual abuse. And as usual, I'll be using a biblical topic today, a biblical passage to launch this discussion from. And it is none other than 2 Samuel chapter 13, the rape of Tamar. In this passage, Tamar, a teenager at the time, is raped by her brother Amnon. We're told that there was this plot by Amnon and his advisor, Jonadab, that put Tamar in this place where she could be taken advantage of. After Tamar was sexually abused as a result of this plot, she was driven from the house where they abuse took place. But before she was abused, she pleaded with her brother. In verse 12 of that passage, we hear her pleading to him saying, No, my brother, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? So she is pleading with her brother Amnon, her half-brother Amnon, not to do this wicked thing, not to sexually abuse her, but he overpowered her and he sexually abused her. And we read in verse 16 and following that she fled from the, 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 the house that they were in, crying and covering her head with her hands. And so we have this distraught woman 
after being sexually abused, fleeing in tears as a result of being overwhelmed by what has taken place. And so sexual abuse have been has been around from biblical times. And it is very common today. Statistics tell us that one in five girls and one in 20 boys is a victim of childhood sexual abuse. So unfortunately, this evil is very common in our society. And I see many married couples who come in to me for counseling help because they are struggling from these signs, from one or more of these seven signs, as a result of a sexual abuse that took place years earlier. Just before I go into the first sign today, let me welcome all my listeners. And if you're new to this show, I want to let you know that you can find out more about us at elimcounselingministry.com or by calling 613-699-1677. So the first of this sign that I would like to talk about today is sexual inhibitions. Victims of childhood sexual abuse often have sexual inhibitions. A playful touch by a husband can be perceived as being sexually inappropriate or as a form of abuse, can be received as an act of abuse because it may be triggering the way the person, the other person who is receiving the act was sexually abused as a child. In addition to that, certain sexual acts that are widely accepted as normal may be perceived as gross or as off limit. These acts again are triggers for what happened earlier during childhood. But we also see that part of inhibition or part of the way that this inhibition plays out is that there can be controlling sexual behavior. The person who has been sexually abused can only engage if they are in control. So they decide if, they decide when, they decide where, and they decide how. And similarly, there are certain kinds of sexual touch that serves as trigger even when sexual activities do take place. In addition, they may also try to avoid sexual intimacy totally due to a feeling of shame and guilt that they felt as a result of being sexually abused. And there may be this general tendency to be disinterested in participating in sexual activity during the, the marriage. So we talk about shame maybe being at the root of this disinterested attitude towards sexual activity. And we can see and feel the pain of Tamar after what happened to her. And so we read in Second Samuel 13, What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace. These are the words of Tamar as she is trying to grapple with the deep shame that she now feels as a result of what happened to her. 
So it would not be surprising if, as a married woman later in life, Tamar's pain and shame might be triggered by sexual activity. So people who are sexually abused usually have these sexual inhibitions, which go against the biblical way in which sex was designed to be enjoyed between a man and a woman. Some Christians may even pass off their inhibitions as being spiritual, like they are somehow superior to others because they are not as interested in sex as others. But this is not what God intended. God intended for us to have strong sexual desires. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul tells the believers there in verse 4 and 5 that they were to engage in frequent sexual activity lest they be tempted by the devil to sin. And Paul says that, and I'll, I'll read, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And that word yield means give willingly and freely and without inhibition. But where there is sexual abuse, this yielding cannot take place because sexual activity serves as a trigger for what happened earlier on. So the first is sexual inhibition. The second sign is social challenges. And so people who are sexually abused as a child may have a tendency to develop rescuing relationships. So by rescuing relationships, I mean relationships in which they are trying to save their younger self. So they may gravitate towards women who are being abused or children who are in abusive home situations as a way of trying to heal that childhood wound. And you may ask, Michael, what's wrong with that? Isn't that a noble thing? Yes, there is nothing wrong with helping others. Helping, however, that comes from a place of brokenness can lead to problems in relationships. So there are couples that one partner is entering into rescuing relationships that's coming from an unhealthy place. And because it is coming from an unhealthy place, it is done in a way that's not governed by, governed by godly wisdom. And it is putting the family at risk. It is creating havoc in the family, in, in the couple's relationship, because it has been done out of a wound. Jesus is an example of how we can help others out of a healthy place, of, out of the healthy place of our soul. And we read in, and so we read in Luke chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, that there were great crowds that came to hear Jesus and to be healed of their sicknesses. But we are told in verse 16 that he would frequently withdraw from the crowd to the wilderness to pray. So Jesus was so healthy that he would not let the needs of others dictate his life. He realized that he needed balance, and so he would take time away from the crowd to pray. When there is 
an emotional wound and the person's operating out of that emotional wound, they do not put these kinds of boundaries in place and their life becomes out of balance. Sometimes they're so busy helping people that they have no time for God, they have no time for their spouse, they have no time for their children because it is coming from an unhealthy place. So their social, this creates social challenges. And they may have, this, these people who are been sexual abuse, one of the social challenge may be that they may have difficulty with male authority figures if they were sexually abused by a male figure. So they may either become very suspicious and rebellious of male authority and uh, maybe that the husband can find nothing logical in their arguments that would tell why they don't trust a certain person in the church or in an organization. But you see, it's not coming from a rational place. It's coming from an emotional place. So they may either become rebellious or they become extremely submissive. So look for these kinds of social challenges because these might be telltale signs that there is sexual abuse at the root of it. Or one of the other ways that it plays out socially is that there may be this overcompensating for low self-esteem caused by the abuse where the person works too hard to win the love and approval of others. They go above and beyond to make friends. They go above and beyond to be liked. They will buy expensive gifts. They will do anything. They they will uh, be at that friend's beck and call or they will visit that friend's house over and over in an excessive way as a means of trying to win that person's friendship. And so these kinds of excessive behavior is a sign that there is something not right at the root of it. And oftentimes it comes from low self-esteem as a result of being sexually abused. And so these social challenges is the second sign. The third sign has to do with parenting. If you're in a parenting relationship with someone who has been sexually abused during their childhood, they may have very restrictive behaviors towards their children. So they're overprotective parenting are their overprotective parents. So the third the third point is overprotective parenting. So for example, there can be no sleepovers. There are restrictive curfews. I have seen curfew situations where children who are 20 years old cannot be out past 9.30 because the parent who is sexually abused has this perception that they're always in danger and they need to be protected. So restrictive curfews, extreme dating rules for a teenager is another sign. There are some families where the young girls are not allowed to date until they have finished universities. And these kinds of, these kinds of excessive rules about dating is often a sign that there is something unhealthy at the root of it. And I know that this is an extreme example to the end of university, but there are other extreme forms of dating rules as well that parents can put in place. And oftentimes this 
this overprotective parenting may take the form of even attitude towards sleepover at the grandparents' home, where there is this mistrust of others, where the children are not even allowed, in some cases, to sleep over at the grandparents'. And this overprotectiveness can also happen in the form of having com- combative parenting, where the other parent who has been sexually abused tries to override the discipline of the healthy parent. So you see, if you are sexually abused as a child, the crying of a child might send triggers of distress to your, to, to, to your body. And your attempt is going to be want is going to be to want to silence that feeling of being distressed. So the way that you're intervening with your husband to stop his disciplining of the child, which might be totally appropriate, might be a sign that there is something deeper at the root of it. And so victims of childhood sexual abuse often have this overreaction to hearing their children cry as a result of being disciplined. And this often creates a lot of conflict between the spouses in terms of their parenting of their children. Michael will be right back. You have been listening to the Life Transformation Show, where award-winning psychotherapist Michael Hart of Elam Counseling Services has been speaking on the topic, Seven Signs Your Spouse May Have Been Sexually Abused. You can find out more about us at elimcounselingministry.com or by calling 1-877-204-2914, where you can also make a donation to this Christ-centered ministry. Your donations help us to stay on the air and to provide subsidized counseling to those who can't afford it. Back to Michael. And the fourth sign is suspicious suspiciousness of the of, of fathers. I'm speaking uh, mainly here about women who have been sexually abused. So, but this can happen with men as well. So if you're a woman who have been sexually abused and you're a spouse of that person who have been sexually abused, you're the husband of that woman who have been sexually abused, you they, they will have suspiciousness of your actions as a father. So I have seen in my counseling practice where father-daughter's playfulness is a trigger for the sexually abused wife. She sees the playfulness between a father and a daughter as being as being excessive. And this is just maybe normal playing between a father and a daughter. But to her, it's a trigger because of her sexual abuse. And so for even young babies, a mother who has been sexually abused, the idea of the dad giving that baby girl, that baby girl that's just a few months old, a bath is very disturbing because this brings back sexual triggers. This brings back the pain of their sexual abuse. And I have had many clients over the years who who struggle with this because the, 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 the dad just could not understand why the wife is so up in 
arms about him, looking after his baby daughter to give her a break. And so, these are signs that there may be sexual, sexual abuse at the root of, of that suspiciousness. And so, other ways that this suspiciousness play out is that the, the victim of sexual abuse may try to sabotage the father-daughter one-on-one time. And so there may be roadblocks put in the way to separate them, roadblocks put in the way not for that, for that relationship not to develop. And you can quickly see how this is unhealthy for the girl because girls need to bond healthily with their father. And if you have a mother who is sexually abused, who is putting a wedge between the father and the daughter because of her insecurity, because of her pain, it's going to lead to a lot of problems. And the fifth sign of sexual abuse is sleeping problems. You see, a lot of children are abused in their bedrooms. And so the bed becomes a place of anxiety. And subconsciously, as an adult, the bed does not give this feeling of restfulness. It gives this feeling of anxiety. And so there are sleep disturbances where sex abuse victims sometimes have problems with, often I should say, have problems with, with sleeping. And so nighttime is also a trigger. Because night was the time when the person in their household that abused them uh, sneaked into their room and sexually abused them. And so night is not a time of restfulness. Night is not a time of safety. The bed is not a place of rest. But but night and bed and the bed is uh, is linked with unpleasant feelings, with being forced, with sadness with shame, with confusion. And so these sleeping problems in adult life can be a sign that there is something deeper at the root that needs to be healed. And so sleeping problem is the fifth sign that a person may have been sexually abused. And the sixth sign is jealousy behavior. Let me say that there are good reasons for jealousy at times, but what I am talking about here is excessive jealousy. So, for example, a spouse who has been sexually abused because of their insecurity and because of their lack of trust for men in general uh, may get very angry if their spouse looks in the direction of another woman, even if it's a crowded place where his eyes could be on anyone in the room. Just the fact that he is looking in that direction may be a trigger. And so there is this feeling that this person, this husband, is sexually out of control because you see they were sexually abused by a man who was sexually out of control. And so a a husband looking in the direction of another woman becomes a serious threat. The person may also make accusations of infidelity that are irrational. So when a person is sexually abused, a lot of times this 
this jealousy, I shouldn't say a lot of time, but at all times, the jealousy is coming from an emotional place, not from a rational place. So a spouse could be accused of having an affair even if they are just five minutes late. They could be accused of infidelity even if they are in the church having a meeting in the presence of other people. But just the fact that there is this woman that he happened to be talking to alone in a crowded room becomes an irrational threat for the sexual abuse victims because you see men are seen as being sexually out of control. So this puts tremendous stress on the relationship. The the person, the husband, has to be continuously defending himself against accusations of being sexually abused. So even if he's in the sanctuary and there are others around, just the fact that he's speaking to a female is a reason for jealousy for the victim of sexual abuse. And so victims of sexual abuse often have excessive male retention, mate retention behavior. So mate retention behavior is signs of possessiveness, signs that I have in control. This person is mine. It may take the form of wanting to hold the person's hands all the time to have the hand over the person's shoulder all the time. And yes, this can be coming from a place of just being affectionate. But a lot of times, people who are extremely jealous have these kinds of mate retention behavior because it's a way of trying to alleviate their anxiety over the person, over their spouse being taken away from them. And the seventh sign is re-victimizing behavior. Many adult survivors of sexual abuse put themselves in abusive or dangerous situations over and over again. And it's one of those uh, things that researchers sometimes try hard to figure out why this is happening. Because you would think that a person who is sexually abused would try to avoid situations where they could be sexually abused again. But this is not the case. Many people who are sexually abused as children put themselves in situations in adult life that puts them at risk to, to be raped as adults. One research shows that women who were sexually abused before age 18 are twice as likely to report being sexually raped as adults. So one way that this might take place is that they may go out drinking with friends and become so drunk that they can't recall what happened. But they may have signs of being of, of being raped while drunk, drunk. Or they may make bad decisions because of their powerlessness where they say yes to situations that put them in danger. Because you see, as a child, they felt powerless to do anything 
about their behavior. And so they give up their self-autonomy to others and put themselves in danger of being re-victimized. And so if you see any of these seven signs in your relationship, it's a good sign to start a dialogue. And even more so, if you see if you see these signs and it's creating problem in your relationship, it's important that you seek professional help to deal with it before it destroys your relationship. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Transformation Show. And I would like to remind you that we're on the air every Monday morning at 9.30. If you're not familiar with this Christ-centered ministry, you can find out more about us at our website, elimcounselingministry.com. Elim is spelled E-L-I-M, counseling with two L's, ministry.com. If you have missed the first part of this show and would like to listen to the full podcast, you can find it on our YouTube channel. So just by searching Elim Counseling Services in YouTube, you will see this this podcast and over 300 more. We also want to remind you that we are a not-for-profit organization that counts on your support to stay on the air. So until next time, this is your host, Michael Hart of Elam Counseling Services, praying that God would bless you in all your relationships and keep you sound in mind and pure in heart.